Blog Talk Radio. Joining us for Three Women with Three Ways, we're the show that tackles some tough topics, some esoteric topics, and uh, sometimes some uh, really important topics. Today's show um, is supposed to feature uh, Eric Licata, who is a former Seattle City Councilman, and um, he has written an article called, uh, well, I'm looking for it, Diffusing the Politics of Anger. And this strikes me as a very important topic uh, for today. It's political election year, and uh, the uh, the election heats up, and we are uh, seeing more and more angry rhetoric. We're seeing anger in the part of the politicians who are running for election. We're also seeing a lot of anger in voters. I know myself, I'm kind of taken aback sometimes by the heat and... uh, and emotion that are displayed between friends who are just trying to talk about uh, different aspects of uh, either political issues or political candidates. So uh, I'm hoping that, Nick, this is you on the line. Yes, it is. Okay, great. Um, We have uh, Nick Licata, as I mentioned, with us. He is a former Seattle City Council member, and he also has written this article called Diffusing the Politics of Anger. But, Nick, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Before we get started. Well, thank you. Um, Before we get started on our conversation about the anger and anger in politics, can you flesh out for us a little bit more about your political background and and your background in general? Sure. Uh, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. My parents were, um, I think we often would say, like working-class folks. Neither of them actually had graduated from high school. My dad didn't go beyond eighth grade because he was forced to quit because his dad died and he had to support his uh, siblings and mother. And my mother was an orphan and her uh, guardians refused to have her graduate from high school because she reached the age where they felt that she should go to work and support them. So both of them were smart folks, but they, they, you know, had, I would say not an easy life. And um, they were initially I would say your your traditional working class Democrats, but over time they became more and more sort of um, upset, angry, and um, from that experience, um, I could see the transformation of people who, you know, on a personal basis, very um, considerate and passionate, but also um, recognizing that they were missing out. And a lot of that anger was directed towards minorities that they felt were being treated special and they were not being special. Um, it was a kind of uh, resentment and sort of um, feeling of uh, envy that I saw uh, exhibited when I was in college and attended a uh, George Wallace rally, who was a segregationist who ran for uh, president. And, um, I, I wrote about that in my book, Becoming a Citizen Activist, in a chapter, and uh, the, the piece you're referring to is was reprinted by Utney, and a number of people have contacted me since then because the um, 
I would say the anger that George Wallace was stirring up is uh, a lot of people, they see it today in what uh, Donald Trump is doing on the far right. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just, um, I I've seen it before and uh, unfortunately we're seeing it again. Well, and you and I talked a little bit about this before the show, that um, my background is extremely similar. I grew up in a very tiny town, uh, not too far from Bowling Green, where you went to college. My parents were also 8th and ninth grade dropouts because of economic reasons. Uh, My mother's father died when she was 13, and uh, she also had to go to work. The family had to move, all that kind of stuff. My father uh, dropped out of school in ninth grade, um, and again, the same reason, um, uh, economic. Uh, his father was in the family, but his father was not a terribly productive individual, and so my dad went to work. And he also said that if he had finished those last uh, few years of, of high school, because his father was pretty much an itinerant, he would have had to have gone to something like seven different schools to finish those those two or three years. So back then it wasn't that unusual um, for uh, people to drop out of, of school and just go out and get a job. What strikes me as as, um, different, however, uh, with your story and with my family, is that my family also, I think, felt that there might be some populations that were getting um, uh, preferential treatment over them, but I don't think they ever felt angry about it. Um, They pretty much ignored it. So the idea of any kind of political activism or, or pre- political resentment really wasn't there for them. So that was a little bit different. But otherwise, you and I have very similar backgrounds, I think. Interesting, um, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I mean, I grew up in the in the area where, the, you know, the, the major employer was the, um, oh gosh, was it the Chevy or the Ford uh, manufacturer? I can't even remember anymore. Um, but very similar working class backgrounds. Um, but when I saw your article about diffusing anger in politics, my first thought right now was anger between not necessarily candidates and not necessarily, uh, well, anger between people who are proponents of one over another. I'm a firm believer and we don't learn anything if we can't talk about it. And yet I'm finding in previous elections, and I'm finding particularly in this election, discourse is completely shut down. If you Mm -hmm. try to play devil's advocate, if you try to say, yes, but what if he's right about this, Mm -hmm. or what if this really does that, boom, you are immediately evil, ignorant, and uh, totally incapable of having a rational conversation with. A little bit different from... Uh, and and I want to talk about this type of anger, but then also move into the other types of anger that you talked about in your article. Have you noticed that? Is that something that's increasing? And well, you know, it's funny. What, what, that, what's that with that? <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you know, um, I didn't talk about it in that particular type of, type of anger in um, that chapter, and I may have touched on some other chapters, but um, I've written about it actually quite a bit because I was very involved in the anti-war movement and the student power movement in the 60s and 70s. And what I saw on what I would consider to be um, part of the spectrum that I more identify with, which today we call sort of progressive uh, orientation, 
was in fact people who were uh, initial leaders in trying to move this country towards a more rational um, uh, foreign policy, something that a, pol- a domestic policy that would basically be more caring to people. Um, as the dis- as the discussion and, and overall, um, I would say, anger ra- rose. Those initial leaders were pushed out by people who were much angrier on the left. And, and basically, when they tried to, as you would say, argue for um, compromises, still retaining principles, they would often be shattered, sh- uh, shouted down and, in fact, uh, expelled from the groups. I, I was very involved in SDS, and I saw people literally being towards the, f- the final year in its existence when the Weathermen came to power and other factions, people being expelled from a group that – was supposed to be very uh, participatory, uh, democratic. Um, so it's. I think what happens is that people um, grab on to an ideal so strongly for themselves that they cannot see it not being accomplished. And if it's not accomplished, um, anyone who hinders that development then becomes part of the problem. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people talk about Saul Alinsky, a great organizer, and a lot of people will say, oh, yes, you know, um, Rules for Radical, the second book he wrote on organizing, um, you know, is a great book. But if you read it, it's sort of interesting. The first part of the book is really devoted to, in some ways, talking about this very uh, problem. He talks about how you've got to be realistic. You've got to figure out what is a winnable battle. You have to deal in the world as it is now. And um, you can't deal in absolutes. If you deal in absolutes, you're, you're not going to achieve any success. Mm-hmm. Well, and isn't there a lot to be learned? I, I, no matter, I mean, we all have our beliefs, whether they're political, religious, whatever. Our beliefs are our beliefs. We arrive at those, hopefully, in a rational decision where we've, you know, uh, and, and in a thoughtful way. But things change, information changes, attitudes change. If we completely become angry and don't open ourselves to listening to the other side, if you will, how are we ever going to grow and learn? And yet I well, see that. I that anger um, just blocking us off from where we happen to be right this moment. Um, our anger keeps us from listening to any other possible ways of thinking. Um, one of the stages, I argue, that uh, someone who recognizes that they're a citizen in a democracy and wants, wants to, in fact, have some control over their own life through our democratic process um, one of the stages is understanding that to get change and to build alliances and to overcome opposition, one has to develop listening skills almost before, well, in fact, before one's developed speaking skills. You know, we all talk about, oh, he's a great speaker and what a great speech that person gave. But this more silent portion of that is the listening that goes before someone speaks, listening to what the other side says, not necessarily to try to convince yourself that the other side is right, but to understand what the other side's concerns are. Because when you talk then, when you organize and you reach out and you have your own objectives you're trying to reach, um, you have to understand what is the link that you're going to make between your desires and wishes and goals and perhaps the people who are on the opposite side or the people who are neutral, 
where are they coming from? And you don't know if what they are if you don't listen to them. Is you know the great thing is that you know when you're talking, um, you're not listening. So listen first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know instead of uh, you know, again in my view, in, when I encounter people with different attitudes, different beliefs, not. I mean, I'm not some virtuous person who can sit there and listen forever, but, I mean, my initial response is, okay, why do you think that? What What are your mm-hmm. motivations for believing that? Um, and then at some point I might just in my mind go, uh, yeah, well, never mind. <laughs> but at least initially, um, yeah. you know, because who knows? They might know something you actually don't. Maybe they have a, a point of view or an experience that never occurred to you. Um, I'm, I think of a, a story when one of my children was in like fourth or fifth grade, and the kids were over at my house after school, and and these little girls were talking, and one of the little girls said to the other little girl, "What kind of a car does your family have?" And my daughter said, "We have a Volvo," and the other little girl goes, "Oh, good, thank goodness, it's not a Ford." <laughs> oh, and I went. Right. What's right. wrong with a Ford? And she said, Henry Ford was an evil, awful man. Uh, and I went, really? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, why do you say that? Well, she had learned in school that Henry Ford was a misogynist, and Henry Ford did this, and Henry Ford did that during the Depression. And I said, well, yeah, mm-hmm. but I said, like most people, he also did some good things. No, yeah. he did no good things. And I went, wow, really? Um, so we were ha- we the the school was kind of a parent participation school, and so we were at an event and and uh, about a week later, and I ran into the the teacher as we were milling around, and I started laughing, and I said, "Well, you realize you 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 are responsible for an entire generation that sees absolutely no merit to Henry Ford. Um, yeah. wow. <laughs> no, nothing he did, you know, could compensate for the the, the bad yeah. things that he did." And yeah. um, uh, we were talking about that, and, and the and the teacher said, well, that's my fault. I came down pretty heavy, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I said, well, you know, probably wouldn't hurt. I mean, the guy is mentioned in all the, the books. He did do some good things, as most of us do, some yeah. good, some bad. It might yeah. be a good idea to provide a balance, you know, uh-huh. to this. And one of the mothers came over, and she looked at me, and she said, then you approve of misogyny? Oh, my God. And I went, Whoa! Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whoa! What a way to shut down any, any thought, uh, any discourse, mm-hmm. any whatever. Mm-hmm. And as I'm talking with some of my friends right now who are, who are really getting wrapped up in political ra- rhetoric and everything, I'm thinking mm-hmm. of that mother. You know, you can't say anything. You can't find any good about anybody, or you are mm-hmm. some evil. Um, uh, uh, co-conspirator with that person. I find that really disturbing. Well, it, it is disturbing, but, you know, you have to, in some ways, we have to go beyond that. It's almost like you almost have to listen to folks who uh, are saying something like that. Um, you know, I find that one of the things, you know, listening is, is, is a very powerful tool. And what you discover, for instance, is when you listen, you also open the door for asking questions. And mm-hmm. what I've seen often is that people um, assume that they know something that they may be only know half the story, for instance. Um, and that allows you to maybe make a more complete picture for that person if you have that information. Or if you don't, you understand where they are, 
where they're making a, a flat statement that logically cannot make sense, and you sort of store it, and particularly if you're going to ever see that person again or people have similar thoughts, that gives you some time to, and this involves work, you know, is looking into it and, and, and questioning yourself as far as, okay, why is it that I think this statement is, is off kilter? You know, nine times out of ten, you'll find out, aha, these are, for instance, Ford did do some things that did improve people's lives other than, you know, his personal bad behavior that was misogynist. But that same sort of logic is applied to Bill Clinton, for instance, you know, because he was a philanderer and therefore all his foreign policies, economic policies are, are not worthy. Um, you know, you could put it on your head and say, oh, Hitler was a vegetarian, so he wasn't such a bad guy. You know what I'm saying? It's like yeah, you can't yes, extrapolate. Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. And yeah. you had mentioned something a little earlier. Um, you said that a lot of people talk about intolerance or about tolerance. And I, again, thinking of my personal, you know, because I'm not involved in politics directly, I'm just involved in, you know, the the, the intercourse between people discussing politics. And, and, uh, and I notice that some of my friends who profess to be the most tolerant, who are, and I'm thinking one friend in general who says, I don't judge, I don't judge, and she's the most judgmental person I ever know. But, you know, the most intolerant person I've ever known but she is tolerant of what many people commonly, um, uh, oh gosh, I don't know, I, is political correctness a term that I want to use, or is that a pejorative anymore? I don't know. She, she's tolerant of, of views that uh, many people find acceptable, but totally intolerant mm-hmm. of any views that challenge those, those attitudes. Am I making sense? No, no, you, you do, and I, I think that's something we all have to sort of guard against. To a certain extent, you know, all the uh, so, social psychological studies show that we're much more tolerant of people who belong to our own tribe, who look like us, or something of that sort, and that's, and that's been proven study after study, and the same thing extrapolated to people who share a common belief or a common assumption of beliefs. And, uh-huh. you know, one of the things that I, I argue is that in a very radical perspective of what a democracy is, and I go back to that because I think a lot of us forget that we do live in one, and that should permeate our, uh, or at least frame our behavior and discussions, is that we have the freedom to question assumptions, and we don't often do that enough, uh, even with ourselves. And that doesn't mean that everything gets knocked down, but you, you force yourself to think about why you're seeing something a certain way and it opens up i think an opportunity for you to either substantiate that yeah you're on the right track or maybe you need to negotiate some changes but it also allows you to see where other people may in fact um not be seeing the whole picture and gives you an opportunity to help them see a a larger perspective uh, Nick, I've been uh, negligent here. If you would like to call in and join our conversation, uh, please give us a call, 646-378-0430. 646-378-0430. Love to have you join this conversation. I find this kind of topic fascinating to to, uh, to work around, Nick. I really uh, am appreciative that you're willing to come on here and talk with us about it. Um, 
one of the things that um, we need to talk about is, you know, obviously I wanted to talk about this this aspect of anger first uh, in politics, but I also want to talk about the benefits of anger. Um, I think it was, oh gosh, who was it? I'm looking at my notes here. Was it um, Frederick Douglass? Let me look. I'm flipping. I'm flipping here. Um, yeah, I think it was Frederick Douglass who said that uh, we need rage. That rage, uh, we, we, we that we tend to think that uh, rage is irrational and apolitical um, and counterproductive. But in fact, we need rage uh, in order to uh, accomplish anything politically. Mm-hmm. Is there a good mm-hmm. part about anger in politics? Well, it's interesting you use the word rage, and, and I think some people would even say passion. And the question is, you know, these, all these words clump together, anger, passion, rage. Um, there's a certain element uh, of it that almost, when you think about it, it's like how do you, uh, how do you start an, uh, an engine moving, right? It's an ignition, right? It's basically um, a bit of fire, right? that allows the gasoline to explode. So there is a certain explosion, a certain element of that. The question is, you have to be strategic in how you use it, right? I mean, you're not going to just throw a match into a gas, I mean, can of gasoline and expect the car to move, right? So, um, but you have to figure out how, and you usually don't do it at that moment. And that's why you need people who are, I would say organizers or people see the broader picture, they can see the rage out there and recognize, it. okay, this is rage. Where do we go from it? I mean, a perfect example in Seattle was a couple of young women who were rightfully enraged, um, interrupted uh, Bernie Sanders' speech, uh, and they were from Black Lives Matter, and they commandeered the microphone in, in with like mall. And it initiated this huge debate afterwards. You know, here's Bernie Sanders. He represents all the positive things. He, you know, he's obviously far to the left on, on compassion for uh, the plight of poor and, and minorities being discriminated, including blacks. And um, and yet, um, they, you know, were they were they being disruptive? Were they being well? They were obviously being disruptive, but were they being counterproductive? And you know, uh, there was a really good article written by now uh, uh, Senator Pramila Jayapal, who's running for Congress, and she looked at it from both sides. And I and I and I can't paraphrase what her article was, but what it did though was start a much deeper discussion of what is going on right now in the country and why there is a Black Lives Matter um, movement and how it does, in fact need to grab the attention of the public. Um, and this was one of the ways they did it. I've often said, those things will happen. You shouldn't debate whether it should happen or not. What you should be debating is, what do you do the day afterwards to move on it? Yeah. I, th- I think that's a good point. Are you there? Yes, I am. Oh yes. no. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. I thought maybe I lost <laughs> you. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so anger can be a motivator, is what I'm hearing you saying. Yes. Right. It can be a motivator. Sometimes, it, sometimes anger is needed. You know, because so, sometimes we 
we accept the status quo, and it could be often our own oppression or the oppression of others, uh, and we become very lethargic, particularly if we give up hope or if we're satisfied with the rewards that we're currently getting. And in those instances, uh, we become passive, and we either become passive victims or we become essentially benign oppressors in the sense that um, we don't really understand how our actions will be oppressing others. A perfect example, not perfect, but you know, one of the examples, our students at the University of Washington recognize that um, their, this, their university, University of Washington, had contracts with companies that was basically using slave labor, particularly child labor. And they went out of the way to do some research, and they discovered that the, uh, the company that was actually making the uniforms for the Huskies was one of those companies. And they began a campaign, uh, which I don't know if it rage or not, but they occupied uh, uh, administration's uh, uh, offices on three different occasions, and people got arrested. But they had to grab the attention. They had to get some, some um, I would say, raise the level of concern on also sort of an emotional level as well as an intellectual level. In the end, they actually won. The, the city, I mean, the University of Washington did not renew the contract. Um, but, you know, there was a combination of things. There was rage, but there was also good research. There was also data. There was also strategy and who they pinpointed to go after. Um, it's like having a full picture. You know, you can have a lot of bright colors, but you just throw them on a, on a, on a um, sheet. You don't see anything. I mean, you know, you don't get much unless you're, unless you're like uh, – And Jackson Pollock like at work. <laughs> yeah, Jackson Pollock. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay, so you agree then with Frank, uh, Franklin Douglas that, or Frederick Douglass rather, that we that that anger can be a real motivator. Anger isn't necessarily something that that's not appropriate or useful in politics. Now, in your um, uh, book and in the article uh, that I'm referring to, you mention mm-hmm. the uh, a polarization that anger can create a polarization. Mm-hmm. Which can, can yes can be bad and good. Um, how how do we manage anger in politics? Well, how do we as citizens I, manage it? How do how do candidates manage it? Well, I, you know, I I think how we manage it is one we recognize that we're all human beings, and, and none of us, unless we're on Prozac twenty four seven. Are ever not going to have emotional, uh, angry, or, or, or you know, um, periods of time when we you know blow off steam. That's that's human nature. You know, we're not going to stop that. Well, I think we have to recognize, and and again, it's not just in ourselves, but in other people. When, they, when something like that happens, you have to look at it and say, what is causing it, and is there something that can be addressed? When I went to that rally for George Wallace, I saw lots of anger there, and I, as I. Most of these people are people I was familiar with. I grew up with them, you know, very working class, lower class people. But um, what they really were angry about was they felt they had no control in their lives. And Wallace, which I think quite honestly what Trump is, uh, Trump is doing today, is just throwing out um, a very simplistic message, which is that um, there's bad people out there. And we're going to defeat them. We're going to basically lock them up, or we're going to basically shove them out. And that is not a solution. I mean, in a realistic sense, whether you're left, right, or whatever, it doesn't matter. That's not a solution. You know, 
that's a, a short-term game plan for basically making more enemies. Um, and so it's not a question of saying people should be angry. Okay, I understand they're angry, but how do we get to what they're angry about? And what, how do we address it in a way that they can listen uh, to what we have to say? That's, that, I think, is where really leaders come forward, people who have given us some thought and also learn how to communicate in a way that bring people around. And I, 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 and I say bring people around, it's not a question of, of them giving up what they want, nor of compromising your own principles, but it's a question of recognizing that there is a road that both of you can go down towards uh, victory. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what about, I guess, degrees of, of anger? At what well, point is anger useful, and at what point is anger destructive when it comes well, to okay. a political end? Sure. Well, the great example that uh, – actually, sort of funny – that um, Hillary Clinton used is, you know, Trump gets angry a lot. Do you want to trust him with his finger on the, on the, on the button to start a nuclear <laughs> war or not? <laughs> that was perfect. But, you know, in some ways she bowed that from um, – I think it was Lyndon Johnson for the uh, anti-Goldwater campaign. Same thing. You know, you touch Goldwater because he's such an angry person. Um, the, you know, like anything, there's excessive, uh, there can be the negative responses to having excessive good things. I mean, obviously the most obvious is dessert. Yeah, dessert's good, but you drink, you eat it all the time. There's going to be a negative impact. Obviously, just look in the mirror. Same thing with <laughs> anger. You know, you you know you can be angry all the time, but at some point, it it's going to make you an unstable personality. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think what we are are talking about here is that when there's a, anger expressed, not just individuals but groups, and they're angry, to try to Address them by saying "Don't be angry" is not going to get a response. That, <laughs> that is guaranteed to make, to make you angrier. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's like, <laughs> what good is that? I, I, I remember my my mother. I would I was I can't even remember what the scenario was, but I remember saying expressing how I felt. You know, I feel this makes me feel blah 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 blah. And she looked at me and said, "Well, you shouldn't feel that way." And immediately, I just <laughs> hey, how could you tell me how I should and shouldn't feel? Right. You can tell me how I can behave someone... or how I should behave, but exactly. how could how yeah, could you're... You know, I mean, it, it just—it was like a, a flame set off inside me as soon as she said, "You shouldn't feel that way." You know, mm-hmm. it, it had absolutely mm-hmm. the opposite reaction that she wanted to right. create. <laughs> right, right, right. So yeah, it's it's denying people's right to have feelings or that particular feeling. Um, but I mean, there's really the but, I suppose. But the I guess you know, going back to the basics. We have to, we being, let's say, the average uh, citizen or, or people who are commentators, uh, understand that we're not going to eliminate anger, okay? Anger will be there, and w- whether it's in ourselves or others. It becomes destructive when there, it's, not conf- it's not within a strategy or within a, um, a vessel that can direct it towards something positive. Um, if you look at you know 
many of the revolutionary um, incidents that, are, that occurred in the past, anger was the great motivator. It was the American Revolution, the Russian Revolution, or the Chinese Revolution. You know, they all shared, to a certain extent, a certain portion of the population was angry, very, very angry, and they were willing to set their lives down to change the world. But um, it wasn't the leaders of each of those, and they were very different, obviously, in, in some being democratic and other being basically totalitarian, but the leaders understood that that anger had to be harnessed and directed. And that is always the challenge to leaders, whether it's within a democratic con- uh, construct or not. But I believe particularly in the United States, where we do have a democracy, it's particularly important, not just to leaders, but to citizens also recognize that their anger is legitimate. Now you have to do something about it. And that's where the the responsibility falls on, on leadership and politicians and people left to office that they have the tools to address that anger. And that's back on another topic I have. If you don't give people the tools to get the power to address their anger, then you're creating a situation that will not lead to a solution and will only lead to greater anger. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, so, I think, you know, my, forgive me, but my mind tends to be kind of linear here, so I have to do this for myself in order to make no, it No, no, that's fine, yeah. So what we, we started out talking about um, anger as a method of shutting down discourse, and um, uh, now we've kind of segued into um, a conversation about how anger uh, in a political context can actually be a motivator. It can... Um, mm-hmm. uh, lead to creative responses uh, to political oppression, for example. Um, But is there also a different form of anger? Um, Is there something, is there another reason for anger in the political arena? I guess, guess, and I'm trying to... What what are you thinking of when you say um, that? There there can be some nefarious reasons for generating anger. I mean, I'm thinking of the classic Hitler and all of that stuff where where anger is generated purposefully in order to accomplish a political goal. Yes. Um, You you know, it's interesting. Hitler wasn't the first one, he won't be the last one, that tried to generate anger in people. But sometimes it's real. I mean, it really is not easy to generate anger in people if they themselves don't have the seeds of anger in their belly. I mean, interesting example. Che Guevara goes to Bolivia to basically because he was in Cuba, he was succeeding in, in, in Cuba, and Castro, you know, was, was in charge as so a chased idealist from Argentina, you know, would start, start as a doctor and went to Bolivia to work with the uh, uprising of the peasants in Bolivia against the dictatorship, he wasn't getting anywhere. And it wasn't because the peasants themselves were not living under horrible conditions. It was that basically they, they didn't feel like they had any way to express them, their anger that was useful, and therefore they were just passively accepting their, their oppression. And he found it very, very difficult to get any sort of traction. So there's a lot of different elements. Just wanting to generate anger doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to succeed. Um, and would you, you know, so I guess what I'm saying is I have to be fertile ground. If there's no fertile ground, it doesn't do any good throwing seeds on clay, 
you know, it's not going to take root. Huh. Well, and, you, you know, when you talk about that, when we talk about a citizenry, uh, we, we've often said that if the citizenry doesn't have, um, if they're well-fed, if they can do what they want, if they're at an economic level where they're they're okay, it's very difficult to get that citizenry stirred up about something. It's the people who have yes. some sort of right. uh, suffering, some sort of um, malcontent. You know, those are the folks that you can tend to get stirred up about things. Well, you know, it's also there's also the execution of not the execution, but there's also the timing of how, for lack of a better word, we'll say how oppression or um, um, the the um, cons- the constraint of your uh of your freedoms, you know, including economic freedoms or your prosperity occurs. And I give you a good example. In some ways it's clear with let's say African Americans that police brutality exists because there isn't a week that goes by that some white officer has shot and often killed uh, an Af- uh, African-American citizen because they're reaching for their cell phone or something absurd like that. And and the way the laws are written in the way and, and contracts often is that yeah, if you follow exactly what the rules are, yeah, I guess they were justified. And so anger is very clearly focused on behavior that um, has to stop. There's a different sort of situation and it's over a long period of time but the impact is as great. For instance, if you look at the average family, we're talking about white families as well in particular, um, over a 25-year period, their economic growth has been less than one-third of 1% uh, averaged out. It's just minuscule, but their costs have gotten have continued to grow. So what does that mean? People basically not only feel like they're standing still, they feel like they're on an elevator going down slowly, right? And I think part of that is the anger that Trump is has uh, tapped into and to certain extent, so as Bernie Sanders recognizing, although Bernie I think is much more rational and has solutions, but they're both tapping into the sense that we are, as a, as a family, as a group of people, we're sinking. We're not we're not getting anywhere. In fact, we're losing stuff. Many people, particularly in Seattle, is a good example. Can't even afford just to buy a home. Why well, can't even afford to pay the rent to push out of the city? And but that's happened over a long period of time. It's like finally the frog is realizing that the water, in fact, is boiling, and they're going to have to jump out of the pot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, gosh, I'm I'm trying to tie this together here um so we have um ang- you know i mean the, our whole conversation is basically politics and anger politics and anger we've talked about interpersonally we've talked about you know from the standpoint of the politician uh i guess we could call that a, a manipulation of anger but then yes, you it can also be manipulation of anger from politicians, although good politicians I would say represent can give voice to anger and get changes made. That's true. The other thing that um, we didn't talk about, but you you hit upon it, and it kind of stuck. I made a little note here: powerlessness, anger with powerlessness. Is there a correlation there? 
Oh, I think so. I mean, particularly, it's interesting. Powerless by itself will not necessarily result in anger because, for one thing, you can be resigned to not having any power or you can feel like it's hopeless to try to get any power. Um, And that's where cynicism, which I always say is probably the greatest hindrance to having any progressive change. Um, But aside from that, um, if you have powerlessness and you have the expectation that things should get better and could possibly get better, that's when you get to anger because then you recognize that you're being held back. Then you, real, then you recognize that it's not just you're powerless and you can't do anything about it, but in fact, someone's promised that they're going to make improvements and haven't resulted in improvements, which is often a, one of the indicators. Or some people are getting better off and you're not, so, they, so the expectation is that it's your turn now to get better. Um, and, and again, historically, this is this, the, the funny part about a lot of revolutionary movements is that they tend to occur when things actually occur uh, are slightly improving as opposed to continuing to go down. They've been down and they improve slightly and they raise people's expectations. Ah, now we have a chance of actually doing something. So hope actually plays a role in motivating people to take well, to release their rage, but also to organize and mobilize and try to make change. You know, you, when you were talking about about, uh, I've had uh, several situations recently, um, and I think you and I might be in the same generation. We were in a very activist generation, I believe, um, yes. where we mm-hmm. felt it was not only our role but our duty to um, actively campaign um, to make political change. Um, and if mm-hmm. that doesn't include you, that's fine. That included me. Now no, at this stage in my life, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> um, but now at this stage in my life, I'm finding myself. I, I work with students a lot, and just in my daily um, um, life, I am becoming so frustrated because I will go somewhere and I'll say, "Okay, here's a problem. What can we do about this? Let's 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 figure out how to take care of this particular problem." And the uh-huh. young people that I encounter kind of go, no, that's the way it is. Well, yeah. I realize that's the way it is right now, but what can we do to change this? No, that's the way it is. And I've seen this in so many levels of, uh, for example, in, in um, uh, discussion with young people about uh, having a, t- a car towed. Okay, In uh-huh. Seattle, you, you, you have a parking violation. They tow your car. You're paying an average of about $800 to get your car back. In Portland, you're paying an average of about 175 to get your car back. In a discussion with young people, I said, is this fair? Should we be right. doing something to try and, you know, bring this cost back down for people whose cars have been towed in the Seattle area? The response from right. the young people was, well, if they parked illegally, and you know. And I'm going, yeah, but we're not talking about the parking fine. We're talking about right. the expense of having your car towed. You don't feel mm-hmm. any any sense of anything about that? Well, if they parked illegally. Ah! <laughs> ah! <laughs> well, and, 
I mean, you know, and I was talking high, to a friend yeah. about this. I said, this is making me insane. You know, how they, yeah. it's just like, you yeah. know, when did these, these young people become such sheep? And uh, I said, I feel so sorry for generations, you know, the the next right. generation. Because, right. you know, and, and you, you know, you can't get anyone to, to become excited about anything. And my friend made the comment, don't feel sorry for them because all they don't have the expectation that there will be change. Right, exactly. You're frustrated because you have the expectation that you can change things. That's exactly the point I was making. By the way, on that small side note, that was one of the things I was in the council that we did address. And um, we did get the law changed. So the changes do happen. And we did actually dramatically lower the, the uh, fines that uh, the private companies could do. They resisted mightily. And as far as I know, the legislation went through. It's, it still may be higher in Portland, but I think we, we cut it in half. But that just goes to show you that, you know, even when you get victories, you still have to continue struggling. It's, you just can't yeah. stop. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But the... I think what uh, in in my roundabout way, what I'm trying to come to is that anger can be a tremendous motivator when there is an injustice, uh-huh. when there is something um, yeah. that strikes us. This can be a tremendous motivator. But are you seeing a difference in, for lack of any ca- other categorization, generations handle? Do do are we are we in the midst of a generational? movement where they do not feel that anger they feel more of a sense of complacency that whatever the rules are that's the rules and there we go well actually what again what what some surveys have shown is that the millennials are much more politically involved than the previous youth group um which was really i wouldn't say comatose but very very inactive <laughs> Well, and, go ahead and say it. <laughs> yeah. The, now, it doesn't mean all millennials are active, but the surveys have shown that, they, that they're much more concerned. The, the voter turnout, I think it was in uh, 2020, I mean, uh, 2012, and maybe in 2008, were high watermarks for, for the youth vote. There was in 2008. I can't remember about 2012. But in any case, the, um, the youth vote, can come out, but you have to do organizing. You have to get out to them. And also, this is the other problem, too, uh, and this is why you need, when I say allies in, in government, um, there are, there are um, political uh, groups, I would say basically the right wing, who do not want um, a high voter turnout. So they're passing all kinds of legislation that make it difficult to register, make it difficult to get access to ballots. And youth tends to, I would say, be targeted in particular because they, they tend to, at least recently, been voting more towards, uh, I would say, Democrats and, and more progressive changes. So uh, it's, there are some structural institutional changes that have been made to make it more difficult to um, allow youth to have some uh, political access to the political process. Um, that, that's that's very interesting. So, but you, you're saying that the millennials that uh, fuel so much of my frustration are being followed by a generation that's more active, or indicates that it might be more active politically. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> 
Thank you. You've made my day. <laughs> Good. Um, yeah, I don't know how, you know, and and it's not just political. It's also in other aspects of, of life where I'm feeling this frustration with this group of young people who basically are moving into being in charge and of everything now because I think the millennials go up to age 34. So these yeah. are the folks that we're encountering on a daily basis. And right. it is, it, it's just, um, you know, I mean, I, I was I was literally saying I'm going to have to take an anger management course because, Almost on a daily basis, and it is making uh-huh. me angry. I, right. you know, in a shoe store, all the shoes are on sale, on sale, and they're all marked except my size. But it's the same lot of shoes. I take the shoes mm-hmm. over, and it rings up at the full price. And I'm going, no, they're on sale. See over there? No, no, this is the price. No, see, they're all marked down all over there. They're all the same one. They're even the same the stock number, just a different size. And he pushes the the little uh, reader board from the yeah. uh, computer forward so I can see it and says, see, that's the price. Ah! <laughs> it's just like, yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it just, it's making me crazy. So yeah. I need to see if yeah. there's a good counselor out there, somebody who can counsel me on how to not be so impatient and angry with these scenarios. Give me a call. I, I need help here. Right. Um, but, right. you know, from a politi- political standpoint, um, that kind of that kind of anger that I feel is not productive because mm-hmm. it doesn't accomplish anything. But some of the anger yeah. that we feel politically can mm-hmm. accomplish something. It's a matter, yeah. as you're saying, of channeling it in the right direction. Right. You know, I wanted right. to mention uh, down the road. I don't have the exact date in front of me, but down the road I have Ron Hayduck. Uh, who is from uh, Michigan, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, a professor from Michigan, and he's done research and he is advocating for non-citizenry voting rights. Apparently, in this country, we actually have a history of allowing non-citizens to vote. It's only been relatively hmm. recently that we're getting all, all bent out of shape over that, and yeah. uh, primarily in local elections. And he's making a case for why we should do that. And, in fact, there are still some... There are some uh, um, Places uh, in Connecticut, I think, was one of them. But but there are some actual areas back east where non-citizen people, residents, can vote. They're allowed to legally in vote local in elections. municipal elections. Yep. Yes, right. I've, Isn't that I've interesting? Seen that. In fact, yeah, it is. In fact, actually, um, I was supporting, I, I supportive, and still am, of a thing called participatory um, budgeting. Um, and Seattle just began began it this year, focused on youth, and we have the youth uh, age, I think, down as young as 14, which obviously is before you could register to vote. And the youth, uh, the, there's actually money set aside, so it isn't just a question of lobbying. It's a question of this money set aside, and the youth can vote where they want the money to go. And I thought it was great that we're reaching down to you know, very young um, people to give them a sense of responsibility and, and also some power that you will be able to decide how you would like to have public funds spent um, and they can see it go through fruition in projects being accomplished. I like that. I like that. Uh, who are, now are these seen as advisory votes or, or, or votes? No, these are actual the votes. This is, but yeah, participatory budgeting began actually in South America. There's about 20 cities in the country that have it. Some of the bigger cities like Chicago and New York actually go through their what they call their um, city council members because they, they come from districts and they have 
uh, funds set aside discretionary funds where they, they can make the decision. But Boston, like Seattle, was doing something citywide, and uh, I suggested that we borrow Boston's model, which focused just on youth as opposed to everyone. And our first year, we put aside $700,000, run through the Department of Neighborhoods, where uh, a, uh, a board consisting of mostly youth and a few adults um, would come up with proposals, and then they would uh, vet them through the departments to make sure they were practical. And then a vote would take place for all the youth. And then whichever the top um, items were chosen, the money would be there, and they would follow through and and they would uh, be executed. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. The the evolution of our government, I think, is is a fascinating process. It's it's a fascinating it's fascinating to look at historically. It's fascinating to look at from a a, a, a present. Um, sociological context as well, I think. <clears throat> Let's jump back to anger, okay, Cause, yeah. uh, to kind of okay. sum up. Um, sure. What I've gotten from our discussion today is that, <clears throat> excuse me, anger can come in several forms. Um, some of it is very fruitful, and some of it is um, pretty, um, pretty negative. But I don't think there's going to be any way to eliminate it. And so managing our anger sounds like the best approach to me and excuse me for the powers that be uh, for example if i'm currently if i'm sitting on the seattle city council and i have a very angry citizen come in um how do i manage that how did you manage that well i would ask him what's making me angry Uh, and then i'd ask him what what do you see as a solution and then I'd ask him, what, what have you done to pursue that solution? And how can I work with you to figure out a strategy to, to reach it? Well, you're definitely not a millennial. But I remember talking with uh, a flight attendant once um, I, when I was working on my master's degree. And he recalled one of his, his life changing moments was he had Lee Iacocca on his flight. Lee Iacocca, right. for those of you who don't remember, was head of a major car corporation, did very was very successful in turning that corporation around. And he said the the airlines, bad weather, flights canceled, everybody was upset, everybody was angry, everybody was yeah. demanding of the flight attendants that that they get their flight and get their place where it and he said Lee Iacocca came up to him and said my schedule requires that I be so and so. How can I help you make that happen? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he said that moment right there, he said, was pivotal for him because he realized that as opposed to all of these other people who were demanding and angry, he was yeah. being invited on board to help solve a problem. Right. Right. And it made him right. want to solve that problem. And exactly. so he used that strategy. And, and I've tried to learn from him. Um, I, I must say I'm not as, as successful as I wish I were <laughs> um, in, in adopting that kind of a strategy, but I definitely see the value in it. Going full circle, using that kind of a strategy in our interpersonal discussions, where we started mm-hmm. out this conversation talking about how anger can shut down 
discourse. And if you don't have discourse, right. there's no chance you can learn something different. You never know. We, right. we hold our political values hard and fast, but every now and then mm-hmm. there are moments when we have a realization or we learn something that changes those That's hard right. and fast beliefs. If mm-hmm. we don't open ourselves to discourse, if we shut down discourse in anger, mm-hmm. we are never going to have the opportunity to, to learn and grow and change those, those, uh, those, those hard and fast beliefs. Right. How do you right. handle that on a personal level? How do you handle political anger that seems to be shutting down discourse? Well, you know, sometimes you have to make room for people to to vent. You know, so you can't can't stop a geyser in the middle of its gushing, right? So <laughs> you're going to have to have have, to have some tolerance for 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 listening or forbearing with 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 the anger. But I, usually, some people. I mean, usually, people at some point will will settle down. And then at that point, that's where the door opening occurs. And it's, you know, and then it's, then, you know, I say, okay, what do we do about it now? And that gives them an opportunity to say, what is what I think we should do? And then you go, okay, let's figure out what, how to get there. And it's amazing how people respond very positively. but that approach, and, uh, and that's the pr- exact approach that I'm feeling such frustration with right now, that idea of, okay, we have a problem. How do you think we can solve this problem? Because I think rational people compromise. Rational people think, well, okay, I, I want my car to be towed for free. That's what I want. Okay, well, we can't sure. do that because, you know, this guy right. has to be paid. You know, in, in discourse, most people are able to go, oh, well, okay, all right, okay, they've got to be paid something. I understand that, you know, um, right. and, and there's room for negotiation. If you both recognize that there's a problem to solve, I think when there's anger coming into play, basically what that's saying is, well, you have the problem, not me. So you go solve your own problem or you go ignore your problem. And it well, just shuts things down. Well, that's, I mean, that. That's an option that many people do have is that just leave that person alone who's who's angry. And I would say certainly if you're in political office, public office, that's not your option. It shouldn't be your option. You have to work with those folks. And if it's someone in your community that may impact you, then you have to play somewhat a, a similar role in asking yourself if that person continues to be angry, uh, how is that going to make your life uh, any worse off? And, you know, can you uh, ameliorate what, what that person uh, feels and, in a way that will not just improve his life, but also not endanger your own? Yeah. Nick, I've had a great conversation here. I've enjoyed this conversation, and I thank you so I much for too. being with us. Sure. <laughs> it's good. Don't you find that it's uh, every now and then you just want to have a good conversation, and you don't have to base it on whether you and I agree politically. We don't have to base mm-hmm. it on any of that stuff. We can base it on the fact that we want discourse, that we want to explore and uh, share some ideas. Thank you so much for being here. I, I appreciate it. I've learned some things about anger, and I've learned some things about uh, uh, political anger, and I'm still looking for that therapist because I'm still getting really upset with those millennials almost on a weekly basis. So, oh, no. 
(laughs) Contact me. Give me some support here. I end our show every week with a quote, and um, I found a quote that's not necessarily about anger in politics, but it might work. You will not be punished for your anger. You will be punished by your anger. And that, of course, is a quote from Buddha. Thank you for joining us on Three Women's Ways. Enjoyed our conversation. I hope you enjoyed it too. See you next week. <laughs>